This is Paul Schneiderman today on the 100th edition of Sports Untold. It's my podcast, also played on Rainier Avenue Radio. And my special guest today for the fourth time is UW Husky football legend and former NFL player, current Husky Honk broadcaster and YMCA director, Greg Lewis. Well, Greg, I appreciate you coming back. For the fourth time on Sports Untold, formerly Sports and Stuff on uh, Rainier Avenue Radio. Appreciate you coming on my podcast again. My pleasure. Uh, anytime you get a chance to talk about sports is, uh, you know, a little fun for me. So I enjoy it. So uh, no, no, no need to uh, thank me. I'm glad to be here. Well, Greg, you're a gentleman. I appreciate it. It's always fun to chat. You know, you know I like to ask you light questions and a few tough mm-hmm. questions here and there. So I... Yeah, uh, you got that smile. You're like, all right, bring it on, Paul. Right, bring on the tough stuff. I see that smile. Right, right, right. Greg, um, tell me about this new Husky Honk deal you have going on KJR AM nine fifty. You and Dick Mm -hmm. Baird and Dave Softy Mahler are like the panel talking Husky football. How's it going with those guys? And do you find Softy and Dick Baird a little too light at times? (laughs) Well, you know, I've been doing Husky radio broadcast for the last I don't know seven or eight years, and before that, I did television. Uh, with Bruce King. So I enjoy talking Husky uh, athletics and Husky sports, obviously. And with uh, KJR getting the new full-time radio bid uh, to broadcast Husky football, it was kind of natural for me to go over there and uh, join up. And with Hugh Millen stepping aside because his sons are actively involved in playing college football, it opened up a spot on the Husky Hawks. And uh, who better than Greg Lewis uh, to bring on, you know, I think I bring some interesting perspectives um, not only was I a former Husky football player, but I was also assistant athletic director uh, at, in the department for seven years. So I sort of have that, you know, student athlete, you know, their best interest lens that I bring in. Um, I've coached, you know, sports for many, many years and I'm a huge Husky fan. So um, I think I fit kind of right in with the guys and it's been fun getting a, you know, new crew. Um, Dick Baird has certainly <clears throat> been associated with Husky football for a long time and he's a true honk. Uh, he sees everything glass half full. And if there's something really wrong, you know, uh, he, he looks at the bright side and how can we fix it, which is a great perspective to have. And I think Softy is sometimes your typical fan, you know, when things go bad, he, you know, overreacts. And when things go great, he overreacts. And so it brings some levity and some energy to the broadcast. And I just try to, you know, be honest um, talk about things from a football perspective, from a student athlete perspective, um, and really, you know, show my Husky fandom, but in a way that's true uh, to what's actually happening and going on. And, and you know, you know, pointing some things out when they need to be pointed out. So I enjoy doing it. You know, Greg, it seems that things that you really landed with the Como Husky contract when that ended, it mm-hmm. seems like it worked out pretty well for you personally be able to cover Husky football after the Como thing ended at KJR. Yeah. I mean, I've been, like I said, doing something affiliated with Husky sports and media for a long time, a lot of years, and I enjoy doing it. So um, when the, when the Como deal ended and KJR got the bid, the consistent part was IMG sports who owns the rights to Husky sports marketing. That's right. And since IMG was responsible for hiring the radio station, they liked the work that I did uh, when I was with Como. And so they made a place for me to come over to KJR as well. So, you know, Tony Castricone, who's the voice of the Huskies, um, uh, uh, really liked some of the work that I had done there. So he asked me to be a part of it. Um, I was hoping to do some of the play-by-play, but they did get a really good guy in Cam Cleland, who's a former Husky as well, uh, who's working with Tony on that part of it. Um, but they did keep me involved. So, you know, I, I'm, I'm thankful for that. You got the pregame and postgame stuff going. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Dick Barrett's a funny guy. My, my mom actually grew up with Dick Barrett. They went to Roosevelt High School together. So I, I've known okay. Dick casually years. I know Softy a bit. And Hey, by the way, for my few listeners and my few watchers, I did a continuing legal education presentation. That's why I'm still in a coat and tie. So, Greg, and also <laughs> I, I put a coat and tie on. I'll keep it on for you as well. So, Greg, um, you are basically working as a correspondent reporter for Husky football right now. And mm-hmm. what is your take? And you're not really out, at least at this point in your career, with the fans sitting in the stands. What do you think of the new policy at Husky Stadium selling alcohol at games to all fans over 21? And what do you think of the new policy 
that fans cannot leave the game and re-enter the stadium. I have so many fun memories of leaving mm-hmm. at halftime, running to like a friend's tailgate, running back to the start of the third quarter. Give me your give me your thoughts on those two New Husky Stadium policies. Well, I think the policies are in place because things have changed. Things are different. Um, there was a time when Husky football was probably the most viewed and watched sport in our town. Uh, in the Mariners' infancy, the Seahawks were rising to prominence. Um, you know, maybe the Sonics uh, were, were capturing the basketball fans. Uh, but Husky football was a big, big deal. And there were 75,000 people in the stands. And there was this great game day environment and great game day experience that was generated just because the Huskies were so beloved. Well, Seattle's a progressive city. And now when you go to a Husky game, there are lower numbers at the game. Um, there are a lot of things to do on a Saturday. And let's face it, the Huskies have gone through some ups and downs uh, since uh, probably 2000 uh, when they went to the Rose Bowl with uh, Marcus Tuyasasopo and sort of that last connection to the Don James, Jim Lambright era with players who were recruited by those guys. And so the athletic department has been tasked with trying to create a game day experience that fans will not only enjoy, but will keep fans in the stands coming to the games um, and enjoying that full experience. You know, I went to the Michigan game this year. There were 108,000 people in the stands cheering loud. I mean, going crazy. And they've had some struggles recently up until this year. So I think those policies are, are trying to figure out how do we, one, create a great experience for everybody, um, and two, keep the fans in the stands. Uh, we have late arriving crowds a lot. We have people going out and never coming back. Um, we have people going out so that they can get beer and that sort of stuff. So why not put that stuff in the stands and then keep people in the stands and not allowing them to go back in and out? Uh, because the idea is to give the kids the best environment that they can to have the play in and give the, the fans just that game day experience that, you know, the University of Washington you know, has had in the previous years. Paul Schneiderman hosts the 100th edition of my Sports Untold podcast, also on Rainier Avenue Radio with Greg Lewis. Yeah, your points, I get your points, Greg, and, and I can understand why they're selling alcohol at the games now. That I don't have a big issue with. But maybe when the COVID thing improves, mm-hmm. I, I like the idea of being able to leave the stadium and come back. But, hey, I, I, there's worse things in this world, so I, yeah. I, I don't want to, you know. There's so many people choose now not to come back the tailgating experience has become a bigger deal than some people's uh, experience than the actual game. And I think the idea is to, you know, when that third quarter opens up to not have the stadium half empty, to have folks still in their seats, in their stands, rooting for the dogs and rooting for those kids and giving them that home field advantage that, you know, I know we had during the era that I played. Gotcha. All right. I, I see your points. I, I want to get your feedback. All right, Greg, I asked my prior guest this question. I try not to ask too many repeated and recycled questions, but sometimes mm-hmm. you like to get multiple guest feedback to a question. All right, Huskies are now two and three. They had a very mm-hmm. brutal loss against Montana to start the season. I'm gonna right. pu- I want you to put on the Greg Lewis crystal ball. When this season is over, will the UW loss against Montana be seen as an aberration or will it be seen as a sign of a team, the University of Washington Huskies had some very serious holes and problems. Well, I think it, it, it's a sign of a team that um, has new coaches, um, young. I mean, we have six seniors on this team. We have 75, I think it is, players that are um, considered freshmen or redshirt freshmen or do-over freshmen, uh, whatever you want to call that COVID year. And so um, it wasn't as much as people thought, oh, we have everybody coming back and, you know, we have this great offensive line. We had a lot of young players on this team. And I think going into that first game, we weren't necessarily as ready as we thought and as good as we thought. I think at the end of the year, what we'll see is um, hopefully a coach who's putting his system in place, um, learning kind of on the job. Uh, I, I have no doubt Jimmy Lake will be a good head coach, but I do think he's in that that learning you know, process right now. And so there's going to be some setbacks like that. I, I think that um, I wouldn't necessarily call it an aberration. I'll call it that's where we were at that particular time. But hopefully at the end of the year, we'll be a better football team. And Jimmy Lake will have learned uh, and be it on the job in front of fans who have high expectations. Uh, <laughs> he's still learning on the job. 
Greg, you mentioned Jimmy Lake, and, and you, you may have read my, my the question when I asked here. So when the Hawks were, well, I'm sorry, the Hawks, when the Huskies were 0-2, mm-hmm. Jimmy Lake and Offensive Court John Donovan were coming under a lot of scrutiny. There's still scrutiny sure. going on. But what do you think of the of this criticism that Jimmy Lake and some of his staff have been receiving? Well, I think criticism is, is fair um, because that's what fans do. You know, they uh, want their team to win. They want their team to be successful. They're emotionally charged. And, you know, in a lot of ways, some of that's good. You know, you don't want apathetic fans who don't care. So I think criticism is going to come when you're not uh, where you want to be. And, I, and I'm sure Jimmy Lake and, and, and his team and staff aren't where they would hope they would be at this time. But I think there's a reality that this is where you actually are. The, the, the bottom line is, though, is how do you continue to improve and get better? And, you know, at a certain point, is what you're doing the right way um, and the right style or, or if, if you want to call it that? And so if not, then what changes do you make? You know, we all um, know that old saying to do the same thing the same way and expect different results is insane. And so they have to figure out is what we're doing ultimately and eventually going to work if we execute it properly? Or is this not the way for us to be successful? And if it's not, then we got to make some changes. Um, Again, fans are going to criticize and critique. And I get that. I think that... um, you know, it's fair to say they're not doing as well as they should or could be. I think in the last game, I, I felt like the Oregon State game was theirs to win. And there were some probably two or three situations that happened, whether it was coaching or players executing, that ended up creating a loss there. So they they definitely um, have to get better and do some things differently if they want to continue uh, to make that progress to becoming a good team, which I think, again, ultimately they can be. Uh, But at the end of the year, you know, Jimmy Lake may have to make some changes and that'll be based on their observation on is this the right way or not. Great. You're at that game in Corvallis. Yeah. Yeah. Did Mm -hmm. you guys fly or drive there? No, it was a drive down. It was a drive down there. Okay. Mm -hmm. Okay. But you guys have Husky, Husky uh, broadcasting team and Husky players have flown to Oregon games before though, haven't you guys? Oh, yeah. I didn't go with the team. I actually just drove down with the broadcast team. Okay. But uh, during my era, we used to take one bus trip a year. Yeah. And it was either Oregon, Oregon State, or Washington, or Washington State. State. Okay. Until my sophomore year, we went to Oregon State. We had some sort of malfunction on the bus. Actually, we drove to Oregon. We had some sort of malfunction on the bus. We had actually lost the game. And we had to drive back. And it took us about eight hours to get back. And Don James said, I will never do a bus trip ever again so from there on we never took the bus again that's an interesting story don, don yeah. james said said no more of those bus rides yeah you, you know greg you look at the huskies with two and three start but we are one and one in the pack 12 right now mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Can, can you see maybe the huskies getting really lucky and and, and maybe winning the pack 12 north or like a six and three record i i guess i have a couple of questions within this question is it going to take that many wins to win the pack 12 mm-hmm. north that's part of my question here. I mean, it's possible. I thought going into the last game, you know, that was sort of my message. Hey, we're 1-0 in Pac-12 North. We have a chance to give Oregon State a loss in conference. Oregon's got uh, a loss as well in conference. Um, so it could have really put us in a good position, you know, to get there. I think right now there's a lot of parity in our Pac-12, especially on the north side. Um with anybody having the potential to beat anybody. And you, Oregon's got a loss to Stanford. Uh, Stanford's definitely vulnerable. Washington State <clears throat> beat Oregon State. You know, uh, we've sure. owned Washington State, and we have a win against Cal. So who knows? I mean, I think right now we certainly can't lose another North game and not probably more than one other South game. So I think in order for us to win the Pac-12, you know, one more loss at most, and that being probably from a team on the South would be all we could tolerate. It's going to be a challenge, but but I have a little optimism that we're one and one in the Pac-12 right now. Yeah, I mean, so, there's always hope. And yeah. I think if we can, um, we have our toughest games at home. We got UCLA, Arizona State, and I mean, uh, UCLA and Oregon at home. 
And I'm trying to remember, I think we play Arizona State. Yeah, we play Arizona State at home as well. So those are the three toughest games probably left on the schedule. And Washington State, of course, the Apple Cup, our rival. And we go to Arizona. Um, so we have absolutely an opportunity uh, to win the Pac-12 North, but we'll see what happens. You know, Greg, you mentioned Arizona. And as we speak today, there's two Pac-12 teams in the top 25, Oregon and ASU. There's three Pac-12 teams, including Arizona and Colorado and Cal, that are in the bottom 25. We've mm-hmm. talked, Greg, in a couple of my interviews with you about the Pac-12 conference. Um, right. What's your take on having three of our 12 schools in the bottom 25? The Pac-12 is in trouble. I mean, I don't say this, you know, for shock value or for <laughs> hyperbole. But if you look at recruiting and look at the top kids that are in the Pac-12 footprint, I mean, a huge swath of them are leaving and going to Ohio State, Oklahoma, uh, Alabama's recruiting up here now, Clemson's recruiting up here, and not just in California, but they're coming to the state of Washington. There are three top players over the last two recruiting classes from the state of Washington, two of them being top five players that are now at Ohio State. And... I think the Pac-12 is suffering from a, um, a I'm not going to say credibility, but more an image issue that was exacerbated by the terrible television and bowl alliance and um, contracts negotiated by the last Pac-12 commissioner. I think that set us back. And now it's becoming more of a self-fulfilling prophecy because we got behind. We kind of fell out of the national picture race. Now kids who are highly recruited that saying, I want to play for a national championship and I can't do that in the PAC 12 or leaving the footprint in even larger numbers. And now we really can't compete because we don't have those kids that are the top players. So I think there's, you know, some issues going on with the PAC 12 and the new commissioner is going to have to figure out how over the next three to five years, he turns that around. It's a big job that he has. I certainly think uh, have a little more confidence in him than the last guy. And, you know, I'm not mentioning names, so I'm just saying, you know, the people in those roles. Um, but I think the Pac-12 has some work to do in order to get back to being one of those top conferences. We There is a lot of parity. I do think we're still very competitive. Um, we saw Oregon go down and beat Ohio State. And then Oregon turns around and loses to Stanford. So there's still good football being played in this conference. I just think we have to figure out a way to get the best players to stay in the Pac-12 footprint that are on the West Coast. Greg, you mentioned this new Pac-12 commissioner. I had when I had you on my show before. I know you were critical of his predecessor. Um, <laughs> without saying the name, we can I can do it that way. But do, do you feel this guy was the right hire? This current what is his Klevak? What's his name? George Cleve? I, I I always mispronounce his last yeah, name. Yeah, I can't pronounce. Yeah. I don't want to butcher it. <laughs> you know, I, I may have just butchered. You think he was the right guy for for this new um, job? I, he's saying the right things at this point. Um, a lot of the work can't happen right now that he's you know going to have to do because some of these contracts are still you know in the time you know in which we have to honor them for a few more years whether it's television and bowl and those kinds of things but you know the conversations around creating some alliances with other conferences to do uh you know some home and home and you know scheduling things that i think could be advantageous to make some really good competition and to keep some of the teams from leaving our conference i think right now holding the Pac-12 together um, is a big job that he's going to have to, you know, stay on top of. And then, you know, once we get through these next three years of TV deals and all that, is there an expansion opportunity for our conference to look at from some of the other players? So um, I think right now, you know, from what I know and what I've seen and heard, I think he knows what the task at hand is. Um, and he seems to be able to get some things done based on the alliance, the, the alliance he's already made um, with another with another Power Five conference. So uh, I'm looking forward to seeing what else he can do. Greg, you mentioned Husky recruiting. Why do you, why do you think some of these top local kids, really gifted high school football players, are leaving their backyard school and and going to Ohio State or whatever? Do you, do you have is in any? Well, there's, any there, There's a lot of pieces to it. Like I said, one right now, if you look at the last 10 national champions, where do they come from? They don't come from the Pac-12. I mean, they just don't. And matter of fact, 
Oregon in the first year and then us back in 2016, I think it only packed 12 teams who've even been in the playoff. So one, these kids want to play for a national championship and they don't see that capability in the Pac-12. The other thing are um, some dynamics that have happened um, that are related to um, youth football. So there's like a AAU select type of football now. Um, there's padded and where kids are playing, you know, kids from California playing against teams in Miami, full pad games. And then there's the seven on seven summer circuit. So kids who normally wouldn't have been seen, you know, in the Midwest and back East now are being seen by recruiters and coaches at a young age. And they're getting to know these kids, um, social media, uh, has allowed them to post their highlights and their clips uh, and their um, skills online. So now everybody across the country can see them. Also, it's a good point. When they go and play in these seven on sevens and, and, and play uh, AAU football, they're meeting kids from Ohio and Nebraska and wherever. And then the best players, you know, kind of have this hey, let's get together and go play at Ohio State. Let's get together and go play at Clemson. They're meeting people and they can communicate with these guys on Facebook and Instagram and TikTok and all of that. So the world has gotten really small. And so now it's easier for people to know about the talent over here back east. And it's easier for those kids to meet other kids who all want to go play somewhere together. You know, those top kids for a national championship at a traditional power. So all those things have had an impact on them. You know, your points about the, the effects of the Internet and social media and all that on recruiting, mm -hmm. very, very good points. Because, you know, when, when you were being recruited in 1987, yeah. remember it well, it, it was just a different era, you know? Well, no one back east would have known about me, you know, playing at Ingram High School in Seattle until maybe my senior year, if at all, um, because there were no Greg Lewis YouTube highlights of me, you know, running against, <clears throat> running all over Roosevelt. Oh, come on, you know, come on. Don't, don't go out. there. Don't go there. You know, I got stuff for all about her. You love to throw in the Roosevelt shots, Greg, with yeah. me. You have fun doing yeah. that. Yeah. Plus the top kids I knew were all from the Northwest. And we all talked about, let's go play together to UW or go play here. Where now, if I'm playing seven on seven in Alabama, I might meet some of the top kids from there. And they was like, hey, let's all get together. Let's keep in contact. And let's figure out where we want to go who's going to be the top school and let's all go there so all those things have a huge impact on recruiting now yeah, kind of like you know like different but like durant and uh irving and you yeah. know, are getting yeah. together you know Absolutely. i guess scott gets right i guess high school kids can try to do that at the college level now paul schneiderman yeah. host of the 100th edition of the sports untold podcast also on rainier avenue radio with greg lewis all right greg we're going to go back maybe to a little husky football if you don't mind but i'm going to ask you about a very uh discussed subject the last 24 hours what are your thoughts on John Gruden being let go or being ousted? And what are your thoughts of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers taking him out of their Hall of Fame? <laughs> well, you know, when I first heard about it, his comments, you know, there was an understanding that those comments made like eight, ten years ago. Then later it came out that there were ongoing eight years worth of comments um, so I have a couple of things. One, you know, John Gruden, it sounds like he might not be the person that he says he is. You know, he said a lot of bad stuff. I mean, I've seen some of the things he said and some of the emails and all of that. And those are things that just aren't being tolerated in today's climate. I think that um, there's a heightened awareness around um, people making sure that they're not creating barriers for others. You know, I, my opinions are mine. But when I go into an environment and I take those opinions and thoughts and ideals with me, it's going to affect that environment. I'm going to judge people and judge things based on the ideas that are in my head. So it's understandable that an organization where there's a lot of diversity, you know, like the NFL, you know, his thoughts and ideology might impact what that league is trying to do. And it might create barriers for certain people. And so you have to say, is this something that we mitigate or not? And it doesn't seem like they were able to. What I also believe though is this, he stepped down. And I think the reason he stepped down, because I think there are worse emails. And they're like, if you don't step possible. down, these worst emails make it. This is just my own personal thought process, these worst emails. So that's that. I am, you know, a little leery though of cancel culture, just like everybody else. And that's a term now. Right. Um, where you take something someone said maybe 10 years ago, five years ago, 
and you say this is who this person is and they can never change and they can never you know grow and that sort of thing so i think we have to be careful and i think that's you know where that line with him was had it been the statements he made maybe about d murray smith eight years ago he might have been okay but this ongoing eight years worth of back and forth with another prominent nfl uh person where there was no holds bar and you know they picked on everybody the commissioner the union rep female referees um lgbtq players um and, i mean they went in on everybody and it was quite obvious that there was no remorse around these comments that they were making and once this stuff was discovered he was just saying well that's not who i am but there was never really any real remorse i think around what he said the other thing i think is is they found a lot of these things while they were investigating the washington redskins what they find out about them when's that coming out <laughs> you know you bring up a lot there and i, I was actually on my friend anthony richmond's our mutual friends uh, facebook mm-hmm. well another another roseville guy i gotta throw that in there greg we'll have a little fun with this roseville ingram versus ingram but anyhow but there were there was some it was interesting because sometimes the posts on facebook are kind of you, you take them or leave them but there are a bunch of people posting that said we've all said things we regret and there was a little mm-hmm. bit of theme that nobody's peer and what they say, and I thought that was kind of reflective when I saw a few of my friends and colleagues put that up. We've all said things we regret, but, but uh, you know, Gruden's situation, I, you brought up a lot yeah. of points there. Yeah. But, you know, I, go ahead, go ahead. Go ahead. No, I was just yeah, saying, yeah. it just yeah. seemed like the whole longevity of all of the comments, you know, it seemed like it was about an eight-year, I mean, all the way up until 2018, 19, until he came back in the league, that he was still sort of expressing some of these thoughts and ideas. And, you know, sometimes you're going to have to pay some consequences for your actions. Now, it doesn't mean he can't be redeemed. And maybe this is an opportunity for him to examine himself and say, hey, I am flawed. You know, maybe he's not admitting he's flawed. But if he can say I am flawed and I want to become better and go along, go through that process, you know, think about uh, somebody like a Michael Vick, who, you know, he, he, he had, you know, this history and he paid his price and he said, I'm flawed and I want to do better. And he aligned himself with PETA and other organizations and never had any other issues. So maybe John Gruden could do something similar. You mentioned cancel culture, Greg, which which can happen. It goes on in the right wing and the left. It goes on in different different yeah. uh, you know different ideologies. But but the idea of taking a guy like Gruden out of the Buccaneers Hall of Fame, let me tell you why I have an issue with that. Mm-hmm. Are we gonna start taking like Ty Cobb at the baseball hall of fame. He's a terrible racist, Ty Cobb. I mean, there's some mm-hmm. really not very quality people in a lot of these different types of hall of fames. I, I don't know. I mean, when, when I saw he was taken out of the Buccaneers hall of fame, I kind of thought that went too far. What's your thoughts yeah. on that? I, I would agree there that that's too far. He was honored for what he meant to the Tampa Bay organization and bringing them a Super Bowl. Um, I think, you know, <laughs> right now we're at a time in our history where um, it feels like in order to somewhat right wrongs, you know, we're going the whole other direction. And I don't know if it's too far or not per se in every arena. I think in this particular arena where it's a football hall of fame and it's an NFL deal, I, I don't think anyone would come in there and, and really, at least I wouldn't from that perspective go, what's he still doing in here? So, you know, I I guess in my one man's opinion, I think that might've gone a little too far. I tend to agree. I tend to agree. Mm -hmm. Hey, I got uh, two questions from, uh, from, a listener, uh, Dre Bershane, or I think we both know, know both <laughs> Dre, he's a nice guy. Uh, Dre had one question on what schools would you like to add to the Pac-12? And he had a second question on, I think it was, what uh, current running back reminds reminds you of yourself, reminds Greg Lewis of Greg Lewis? What? So that, there were two questions that he had. So. Yeah, I mean, I'm not a big, you know, fan of adding – players but i i mean schools i mean if you'd ask me let's get rid of colorado and uh, <laughs> you want to subtract back. you want to contract that yeah, you know yeah. okay. let's go back let's go back to the pack 10 and get rid of <laughs> anyway I, I i think um you know you got to look at the the teams that are still around and what used to be the big eight when i was around um and 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 look and see who's still there 
And out of those, I mean, and 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 when you talk about adding team, there's the there's the academic side to it too. The Pac-12 has always been only major research research institutions. Um, but from a football standpoint, you know, BYU might be the best team in the Pac-10 right now. I mean, they're three and zero against the Pac-10. They have two more Pac-10 games to go. Well, I didn't thought um, of that. Yeah, I didn't thought of yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah, BYU. Texas Tech has, um, you know, had some, you know, good football, had some good runs. So, you know, I, I guess you got to look at Texas schools, maybe BYU. Um, you know, those are probably the, the, the primary schools. How about uh, San Diego State? Would that be an interesting one? San Diego State? No, I'm not. Okay. You know, I think San Diego State, Fresno State, schools like that um, just don't have the pedigree, I guess. And they're not traditionally from Power Five. I would like to add either a major, um, you know, un- unaffiliated like a BYU or another Power Five uh, program. So Geographically, though, San Diego is a large metropolitan yeah. area on the Pacific Coast. There is that angle yeah. to it. But but yeah. but yeah. Uh, okay no, okay. And I think Dre wanted to also know what running back today, young running back today, reminds. Uh, yourself reminds him of yourself, I guess. You know? Man, I don't, I don't know if he's asking about the Husky running backs as if he is none of them <laughs> if you took them all you took them all and morphed them together maybe because <laughs> i think you know mcgrew's too small um um pleasant doesn't have enough elusiveness um um oh gosh why am i forgetting the uh, richard newton uh just hasn't you know he, he, one he hadn't been able to stay healthy um and two i don't think he's you know been ex- as explosive as you know, maybe I was. So um, I don't think anyone that the Huskies have right now really at the is moment. In that mold. Okay. You know, okay. there throughout the history of Husky football, you know, I, I really loved some of the guys like Miles Gaskin. He was different than me, but I really, you know, liked him. Thought he was good. I was probably more uh, like a bigger version of. Um, oh gosh, why am I forgetting the kid out of uh, Gonzaga Prep in uh, Yakima? I mean, in Spokane. Uh, rank uh, uh, Sankey. I was more of a Bishop bigger Sankey. Bishop yeah. Sankey. Bishop Sankey. Yeah, yeah, so, Bishop Sankey. Yeah. You I, know, I would say the bigger version of that guy. Well, a factoid that I like to mention about your career, Greg, is I think you finished, what, seventh in the Heisman Trophy vote in the 1990 season? Was it yeah. six or seventh? That's a cool little fact, you know? So Yeah, I, I, I preface that by saying I didn't play the last two games, so I would have had at least 300 more yards if I'd have played in those. And we would have beaten UCLA had I played, and we would have won the national championship. So I think if I had 300 more yards and we win the national championship, I might have finished in the top three. You know, Greg, you're, I think you're on to something. You know, I had Dave Craig on my show, the famous quarterback, a few weeks ago, and, and Greg said, you know, I didn't get to 40,000 yards in the Hall of Fame discussion. We didn't have those strike-shortened years. And, you know, there's yeah. all sorts of stuff with athletes you can think of that didn't happen that could have changed yeah. the the calculus. Yeah, that, injury, so. that injury cost me quite a bit. So. Yeah, I remember that. Remember that. And I think you would have had a longer NFL career if you hadn't got hurt. But you know, you, oh, yeah. you, but you still you still had a good good career when you played. Paul Schneiderman again hosts the hundredth edition. I'm at the century mark of the Sports Untold podcast with Greg Lewis. All right, Greg. Another another um, another big question I have for you, and this is a, a sensitive subject. I'm going to ask it. You know, we, we, we hit on all hey, sorts of stuff. But you and I talk. I got an opinion on everything. I know. Well, <laughs> yeah, well, we talk off the air. We, we, we mm-hmm. chat, too. Um, only, I think, seven people in Washington State have gotten a COVID religious exemption, which Nick Rolovich is seeking. What do you think of his uh, attempt to get a religious exemption now for refusing to take the COVID-19 vaccine? That's his perfect right. Um, you know, everybody can get an exemption based on what they believe, and I don't think anyone has any, you know, right to criticize critique. But it's also, <laughs> you know, the state of Washington's right to say we want all of our um, employees who are going to be around a certain, you know, number and groups of people to be vaccinated, um, or they have to forfeit that right to work there. So it's his right to forfeit his job if that's what he wants to do. I'm not going to criticize him for doing that. Um, we all make our own decisions, but just know that every decision you make has consequences. And if that decision has the consequences that he's going to lose his job, and that's the decision he you know, decides to make, then he decides to forfeit his job. That's, that's on him. That's you know, his, his right to do that. 
I, I, like I said, I don't think we have the right to criticize anyone for their decisions, but everybody needs to understand that if there are consequences, I'm not gonna feel sorry for you for suffering the consequences. What you knew was gonna be the consequence when you made your decision. Rolovich is clearly on notice, the possible Mm -hmm. consequences. You know, it's an issue, too, where a lot of it's how you frame things. And Mm -hmm. I tend to think that if we were framing these COVID um, requirements as more as requirements than mandates, it would be it would be seen differently. Like you take like gun safety versus gun control. Sometimes it's how you frame things. And and let's face it, Greg, you know this. There's requirements for all sorts of jobs. Yeah. Well, Paul, you, the reality is, is everybody's made this a political issue. I don't know how you turn a safety issue into a political issue, but it's so politicized. That's when it went from, you know, vaccine recommendations or requirements to mandates because we made it political. It became a left versus right. And as soon as things become political, people dig their heels in and they, you know, dig their feet in the ground and they're not going to be moved regardless of what the evidence or science or anything says because we made it political. And that's the issue right now. Everything is so damn political that it's hard to, you know, see things through that. For me, when I thought about the vaccination, it had nothing to do with my politics. You know, my politics are all over the place. You know, they're more middle than anything, but they lean this way and that way, depending on the subject. Um, but it was a it was a medical thing. It was a health issue. And so when I looked at it from a medical perspective, especially since I worked in an environment that we're um, connected to doctors and scientists and all of that, I looked at it on what made sense to me. And this is what made sense. And so I made my decision based on that. And it was a medical issue. But, you know, because it's a political issue, that's why you have things like, you know, what we're seeing out here. Well, it should be more of a public health issue than a political issue. Yeah. I'm sure you agree with that. Yeah, exactly. yeah. You know, Greg, a little sense of humor here. And I got another question for you from, from uh, the audience in a minute. Um, you're going to crack up with this. So I went on a blind date many years ago, probably about 17, 18 years ago. And the woman told me, she was looking for a John Gruden kind of guy. I will never forget that the rest of my life. So I was very, I was so humbled by that. But okay, if she wants a John Gruden guy, you know. So, yeah. Well, so, so, well, I wonder if she still feels that way. I don't know. I don't know. But I always got a kick out of that, and I, and I yeah. thought about more the last forty-eight hours or so. Yeah. So, yeah. so I thought you would, you and a couple of the listeners are going to yeah. chuckle. We're, out we're of that, finding so. a little bit more out what a John Gruden kind of guy is. Yeah, so. that's a way to look at it too. What's John Gruden? Yeah, yeah. John Gruden. John Gruden is a is a former coach of the Las Vegas Rams. Who just got uh, pretty much? Well, he resigned, but due to some controversial and ethnic-based and remarks about homosexuals and so forth, he made years ago. He's he's he was let go. Uh, what was the question, Lucius? I have a question from a friend of mine, a Roosevelt guy, Dan Shikiar, uh, who I grew up with. What is Dan's question? Ask Greg if he remembers running me over in high school. Oh, uh, Dan Dan Shikiar, who I grew up with, he he played football at Rosa. He wants to know if if he if you remember running him over in, in high school. So, I do because I ran the whole Roosevelt team over my junior. <laughs> my ju- actually, let me. I'll tell you a little. Story Dan was a year me. behind you. He was class of eighty eight. You were eighty seven. Okay, so yeah. yeah, okay. Well, you know, I made my first start ever as a running back my sophomore year against Roosevelt. Um, you know, coming out of little league football, I was always offensive lineman and I played a little defensive back my freshman year and my sophomore year, I was a backup tailback and our starting tailback had got thrown out the game for fighting the week before we played Roosevelt. Uh So he wasn't going to be able to play. And so they started me as a sophomore and I actually made my debut and realized how good I was based on Roosevelt, allowing me to run for a lot of yards and a couple of touchdowns as a sophomore. Except for I did get hit. There was a guy named Wayne Johnson that played defensive end. He's a, now a Seattle police officer. He was a senior when I was a sophomore. And I do remember a lick he put on me uh, <laughs> during that game. But the Roosevelt's been kind of kind to me over the years. <laughs> you have a big smile on your face. I, I you, you like to speak about my alma mater, Roosevelt, Greg. Like I like talking about Washington saying. State. You love, to, you love to take shots at Washington State, too. So. Yeah. But it's it's all good. Paul Schneiderman, host of the Sports Untold podcast. We're live today on Facebook on the hundredth edition with uh, the great Greg Lewis. Hey, Greg, uh, let me get a couple more. You got a few more minutes? Yeah. Oh, sure. good, good. You know, 
Um, one coach who kind of interests me in the Pac-12 is Jonathan Smith, former mm-hmm. offensive coordinator at Washington. He, he was a walk on Oregon State. He's back coaching at his alma mater. Um, he seems like a pretty quality guy. I mean, if, if Jonathan Smith and Oregon State have a big year, could you see him maybe getting some offers from some bigger name schools? Or I mean, I'm just curious, would he leave Oregon State? I, I mean, I'm just kind of, I want to ask you a question about Jonathan Smith and his future. I think it's more likely that he'll get offers than that he would actually leave. I okay. think he's in a okay. really good scenario and place for him. I think the passion he has for Oregon State, I think the, um, the, uh, the, the leeway he'll be given from the fans there because of his history that's connected to that uh, university. The, the thing about college football coaches is you either have been fired or you're going to be fired at some point. It just is a nature of the, of the profession for the most part. I mean, certainly there's some long time folks who hung around for a long time, but now it's it's becoming more of a, you know, you win. Uh, I I think I read the other day that the uh, the gentleman, the, the head coach at LSU, that he's on the hot seat. This guy won a national championship like three years ago. And now he's on what the hot seat. What have you done for me lately, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think Jonathan Smith has a good, uh, in a good place with folks who love him, who he has history connected to that. Um, that that organization and that university that will probably give him a you know a softer you know landing and, and less you know harsh expectations. So I think it's a good place for him, and I think he's he's doing a good job. But he's been given the time. I mean, you think about it. This is the fourth year. They hadn't won more than maybe three or four four games in his previous uh, you know three years. So. I think you have to, it goes to show you that you got to give a coach some time. You brought up a point about, about Smith. He probably has a, a lot, a little more leeway at Oregon state than we have yeah. in, their, in their school, but, but I'm just in, kind of intrigued with, with him when he's doing Oregon state and yeah. putting on an alternative history hat. We have to wonder that if he had stayed at Washington, maybe it would have been coach Jonathan Smith right now, not coach Jimmy Lake. You just wonder if he hadn't left when he did, what would have, what could have happened with us, whether he could have been the Washington coach. Anyhow, that's just a alternative history hypothetical. Yeah. I remember when he was here, people were complaining about the offense. I know. I know. You know, and he wasn't, you know, the right guy. And and if it wasn't for Tedford coming in and, you know, helping us out, you know, it's it's funny how uh, perspectives change when when people change. Very true. Well, there are people calling for Mike Holmgren's ouster when he was at the Seahawks. Yeah. People are calling for Lou Pinello to be fired. People are calling for Lenny right. Wilkins to be fired. You know, some of these most <laughs> prominent great coaches. Uh, yeah. I don't know if Don James ever got much of that, but it seems like most coaches, even Hall of Fame coaches, had people mm-hmm. calling for their firings at one point. Yeah, I think early in Don's career, you know, before he had the breakthrough, uh, they were actually owing. That's true. Years. That is they true. Do anyone in the Rose Bowl and then. After my sophomore year, you know, we were actually we went my fresh year we went six four and one. Mm-hmm. Then my sophomore year we went six and five and did not go to a bowl game. Lost the Apple Cup, and people were whispering that Don James may have lost it and he may have you know lost the step. And that's when he made the decision to um, change up the offense, went and hired Keith Gilbertson, and you know, a couple of years later, national champions. So. Thank you for correcting my recollection of the history. You're correct. When Don James started in the mid-70s, there were questions if he was going to last as a Husky coach. So thank you for correcting that. All right, Greg, I'm going to get probably two more questions in with you, and and maybe you'll come back for a fifth time if I – if I can behave myself. I'm always around. It. Okay, all right. Well, I enjoy seeing you, Greg. It's always fun to see you off the off the video and the radio as well. Um, I haven't seen you like many others during the pandemic in person, but hopefully I'll see you uh, socially soon too. All right, Greg. I asked Granville Emerson, our friend, this question recently, and I have a book on sports cinema by a guy named Randy Williams. It came out back in about 2006. It's a little dated, but it's a fun book. He ranks the top 100 sports movies. And here are his top five. His Mm -hmm. top five are The Hustler with Paul Newman. Number two is Bull Durham. Number three is This This Sporting Life, an old Richard Harris movie that came out in 1963, Mm -hmm. a rugby movie. Number four is Chariots of Fire, Number five is Raging Bull. What do you think of that list? And what is your favorite sports movie, if you had to pick one? (laughs) Well, I've seen most of the movies you mentioned there, and I like most of them. Um, They were, you know, some of them are classics. Uh, and I, I, I'm at that age now where I'm called, I'm considered a classic. So (laughs) I like them too. You know, there are a lot of good sports movies out there. Some are, you know, less, 
you know, <laughs> I, I mean, they're a little, you know, stretched to call them sports movies. True. But pure sports movies, uh, probably one of my favorites of all time is Brian's song. You know, Great the one. Brian Piccolo mm -hmm. story uh, that, uh, you know, came out, man, probably in the set, maybe early 70s. Um, that's one of my favorite sports movies of all time is Brian's song. Great one. But Gail Sayers and the whole story mm -hmm. there. All right. Here's a few others that I liked. Um, I, I liked Rocky, Hoop Dreams, The Natural. I thought Any Given Sunday with Al Pacino was, was interesting. Mm -hmm. Hoosiers, Eight Men Out, and I'm going to throw in Caddyshack. Those were some sports <laughs> movies I liked. So. Yeah. So. I'm a big Rocky fan, and I can tell you um, the new uh, sort of uh, trilogy that they brought out uh, about Apollo Creed's son, I, first I was like, this is going to be hokey. I don't know how they're going to make this. But those are actually some really good movies. Creed 1 and 2 were really, really good movies. So they they they, they stand the test of time. Uh, I think they will, along with the Rocky series. So. I saw I saw those recent Apollo Creed ones, and I and I, I with you on the Rocky movies. You know, I think Carl Weathers is a great actor. Yeah, he He's was. A, Stallone's great, but I think Carl Weathers is... is, is I, I follow Jack. him on Twitter. He's a fun guy to follow on Twitter. So I... Right. I uh, he played the NFL. One, he's one of your former yeah. NFL colleagues. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Absolutely. I'd love to get him on my show one time, one day, but uh, maybe that's uh, maybe that's wishful thinking. All right, Greg, I think I'm going to get one more question here. We have talked about this before. I think I think it may have been last year I had you on. And by the way, I had you last year on right after the first Biden-Trump debate. You referred to them, both those guys, as like the two old judges in the Muppet Show. So I don't know. You can comment on that more if you want. But anyhow, I remember when I talked to you, I think last year, you, you, you're, you've been, you were skeptical of the idea of paying college athletes. And there mm -hmm. was a new Supreme Court case that came down a few months ago, unanimous decision, Alston versus NCAA. And the court ruled, and I'll break this down in the most simple way possible, that restrictions on educational-related compensation by the NCAA violate federal antitrust laws. Um, Kavanaugh wrote a dissent, or I'm sorry, a concurring opinion that he believes all restrictions on paying college athletes could violate antitrust law. What do you think mm -hmm. of that decision, that Alston versus NCAA decision? Well, I mean, I understand it from a legal perspective, why that makes sense. Um, I think college sports has for a long time been sort of a you know variant from the rule you know or variant from what you know is normal and there's reasons why because of the widespread what you would consider unlevel playing field um that's created when the haves have the ability to invest in college sports um where the have-nots or those frankly who don't think is as important and so you have unequal playing fields. And that's really what it's evolving to. And I think it's going to continue to uh, evolve into with um, all of the ways that players are being able to be played. Now, I think what could have happened that could have saved us from some of this, where I think it's ultimately going to go, is if there's a lot of smart people involved in college athletics. I mean, and, you know, we're talking about college presidents, you know, the like they should have been able to come up with a system where they could have kept players from being in the, in the, you know, the throws that they were in. A lot of players, you know, are in some dire financial situations when they're in college. I mean, they just are. And I think because there were, they were looking for a way uh, to figure out how to get out and they decided to go the legal way. And once you open up Pandora's box, like you just said, the court said, hey, this doesn't make any sense. That's antitrust. If they would have come up with a system previous to the athletes having to go the suing route, they probably could have came up with something that would have made players, you know, sort of even across the board, having, you know, their basic needs met and maybe a little something on top of that that might have been, you know, at least, you know, uh, uh, acceptable. But since they didn't and they just let it go this far, now, like you just said, everything ultimately is going to be on the table. And it's going to create not only a caste system amongst universities and schools and leagues and all that, but amongst players. You know, I know at the UW, I would have felt like, well, I had a 2,000-yard season or I had a 175-yard game this week. You know, I should get a little more than the backup running back who didn't even play. 
So, you know, those And then we have these real. complex title line issues. I mean, should rowers mm-hmm. be paid as much as basketball yeah. players and football players? It gets very complicated. Mm-hmm. But I'm going to put you on the spot, Greg, for a second. Yeah. So Obama had that famous line where he said his position on gay marriage has evolved. Has Greg Lewis's mm-hmm. position on paying college athletes evolved at all? I think it's evolved to some degree. I just think we should have, you know, come up with a system before we got to what's going to currently happen. I think now, you know, schools that where their alums care more about football than they do life itself are going to, you know, pump a lot of money and a lot of, you know, that gray area opportunities. Uh, And then schools who have the connections to alums who, you know, like, like a Phil Knight and stuff like that, they're going to benefit from it. Where a school like um, San Diego State, you know, I don't know who their alums are. I'm just picking a school out of a hat. Even the University of Washington, to some degree, we have obviously some very rich alums, but I don't know how vested they are in college athletics to that level. So uh, I think it's just going to further, you know, create this whole, you know, football appears okay, football in the Midwest is all right. Down south, football is real important, and they're going to continue to dominate national championships. And then there's the air bath. You bring basketball into it, you know, the ACC footprint, you know. So there's going to be some, you know, I think widening of the margins of where um, competitive uh, nature is. Putting on my legal hat for a second, I thought Kavanaugh's concurring opinion was very fascinating, where he said he was ready to throw out all restrictions on paying college athletes. But I think the fact our divisive Supreme Court had a unanimous decision telling the NCAA, yeah. no, you cannot restrict those educational benefits. That was interesting. This very ideological age. Yeah, it didn't make sense. And I think, you know, college athletic has gotten, had gotten used to um, having a free labor force and making billions of dollars and making the people in power. You know, so, you know, one of the things I remember talking about was, um, you know, college athletics is driven by football and basketball players. And most of them come from, you know, um, lower income and, um, you know, real diverse communities. And they're supplementing a whole bunch of rich folks. And they're even paying the tuition of those other sports that you talk about, the rowers and the tennis players and all of that. They're paying their tuition as well. So I think from that perspective, you know, I do look at it as, hmm, the folks who are most responsible for making the money are the ones who probably benefit the less and probably have the most need. So A lot there. We could talk about this subject for hours. Well, Greg, thank you so much for joining me again on the 100th edition of Sports Untold, and always mm-hmm. fun to catch up with you. And uh, you and Steve Kelly are the two guests who've been on my show the most number of times. You each have come on four times. So hopefully I'll behave myself and get a fifth interview with Greg Lewis at some point. So. All right. Talk to you soon, Paul. Thanks, Greg. I'll see you soon. Say Enjoyed it. Oh, yeah, I'm going to say bye to my viewers, too. Th- thanks, uh, everybody, for, for watching, listening. I've got some great questions today from the audience as well.